Hi, everybody. This is Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. To edit your own films or not to edit your own films? That is very often the question, especially for documentary filmmakers, where so much of the story is shaped in post-production. Critics of the method say that it's too hard to be objective on your own, and that films edited by their makers are often too long and self-indulgent. But there are plenty of good reasons why editing your own project might be the right solution for you. And to break them down, we delve into the methods of two filmmakers who've done just that. At the Camden International Film Festival last month, I spoke with two documentary makers who had films in the festival, Irene Lustig and Dominic Gagnon. Lustig's film is Yours in Sisterhood. It features all kinds of people from across America today addressing the camera to read aloud and share personal responses to letters written in the 1970s to the editor of Ms. Magazine, the country's first mainstream feminist magazine. Gagnon's film is Going South. It's his second in a series that's entirely reliant on the editing process as it's fully constructed out of YouTube clips at first seemingly completely random, and eventually shaping the trajectory of several characters to explore the meaning of truth in the internet era. Both filmmakers share their processes and how they make the zillions of decisions that go into an edit on their own. So if you're considering whether or not to edit your own work, or if you just wanna know how the mind of an editor works, definitely give the episode a listen. So for context, do you always edit your own work? Um, I do always edit my own work, um, and for me, um, I'm very attached to the idea of editing my own work, um, and it, yeah, it feels to me like so much of the thinking and decisions happen for me in the editing room. Um, That's really where the film is made for me, Um, but also for me, yeah, there's a huge, and I come from kind of an experimental film background, so for me, so much of the process of figuring out what the materials emerge to be, um, yeah, it happens through really like playing and experimenting and touching things in the editing room and moving things around myself. Um, so to me, it feels really central to filmmaking to, to actually be the one who's in the, not just in the editing room, but doing the editing. Okay, so um, I'm kind of the same. Um, I've always been editing my films. Even in the like 20 years ago, while I was shooting my own film and editing myself, most of the writing would happen on the editing table. Uh, now that I use like found footage, uh, it's barely all I do, <laughs> editing. Uh, often I don't even have um, an idea to start with. It starts with a cut and the other ones follows after. So for me, all the creative thinking, conceptualization, theorizing, because I like to explore subjects uh, through it, um, research, everything happens in, on, in the editing room. And I'm so glad now, because like, uh, when I started it, it was with Steenbeck, uh, with film and scotch tapes. Uh, now it's like I can do barely everything with my laptop, everything with the laptop. So um, it's part of my life. I edit every day. Uh, I nurture, like I, I take care of my edit. Uh, and it's a really long process. Sometimes it takes a year or two to finalize the film. So um, it's a way of being with the material, occupying my film somehow, to have uh, this power over it of uh, editing. That's an interesting point you make too, that you know, back in the day we were editing with Steenbeck's and actual film and 
that not only that has changed, but where you're finding your material, especially you, mm-hmm. Dominic, has mm-hmm. totally changed. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about how the mm-hmm. industry has but changed. But the thing is that while I was making more traditional film, uh, I mean like filming and editing and working with film, when I moved to a computer, it was no internet yet. You know, so uh, a couple of years later, I bought my first PC. Then uh, I had this called internet in my editing suit, you know, uh, my editing room. So it became some sort of a distraction. You know, I would have to fight uh, not looking at my emails while editing, uh, chatting with my girlfriend, things like this, you know, watch porn. (laughs) (laughs) It's all kinds of distractions, you know. So uh, I have decided to uh, use it as source material instead of a distraction. So that's how I start to surf the web and edit uh, uh, clips. Wow, so you leaned in to the distraction of the exactly, internet. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, uh, I just wanted to add a thing about research, because you mentioned that also this idea where the research and conceptualization happens in editing. And that I think, like there's a big spectrum, I think even in documentary of how much people imagine they know their project before they begin. And I think the world of grant making and funding and pitching really encourages you to pretend you know what you're making before you know what you're making it. Um, But I also, I don't know what I'm making until I'm editing it. And for me, that's so important. And you know, when I start a film, it's not because there's a statement I wanna make or a thing I wanna, do right, but it's because I have a bunch of questions that feel like they're maybe interconnected or could be interconnected. And for me, it's really a curiosity that motivates me to yeah, explore and spend time with stuff and sit with stuff and let the film emerge from whatever that stuff is. And all of that work happens for me in editing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the film changes so much. Like I maybe I write a thing for a grant where I pretend I know what it is, but I really don't know, don't know what it is at all until I'm with it every day and, and working with it in editing. We've all done that weird grant pretending. Yeah, it's a strange part of the process. But, uh, I often um, fall back on my uh, in my shoes. Like I will write a proposal, it's like a crazy idea, and then after I get the money, I do whatever I want. And to my surprise, often I just uh, do exactly what uh, I propose. Really? <laughs> it That's happens all the time. Huh. And, but it's not because I follow a, a map or anything. It, it's just that um, when you, it's, it starts with obsession most of the time for me. So I follow those obsessions and it leads me often where I started by writing a proposal or a grant. So I'm, I feel bad while I do it, but in the end, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you're both editing alone. Does anyone else participate in the process? Do you have like people sitting in or uh, advisors or? I show it's really important to get, yeah, especially when you're editing alone. I think you can get into a real like black hole of like you and yourself and your film. And my films are also long. My films are like five or six years usually, and the editing is very very long. Um, so I'm alone for years. So yeah, no one else is with me in the room when I'm editing, but then it's super important for me to, at certain moments, like do rough cut screenings or, and I have like a bunch of film friends whose aesthetics and opinions I really trust. And yeah, I think it's pretty important at certain points in the process to get feedback, Um, but not every day. Like I wouldn't want someone sitting there with me. Like it's very personal and quirky and weird what I do alone in the editing room. Yeah, I feel a bit bad about that because uh, I work alone, of course, but um, 
And all my friends feel really privileged when I ask them to sit with me and to tell me all their ideas and comment, but I don't listen to them. It's just because I need them to sit through my film without touching it, to do a real playback. And I look at it through their eyes, but I don't care what they think. It's, it, it might be insulted you're listening to me now, but uh, it's totally um, uh, opportunist, you know? So what do you do in those sessions? Like, what, what do you get out of watching it? I would drink beer. <laughs> but, like, what's <laughs> the point for you of watching it with them and not taking their because feedback? Because I, I see them on their chair. I see them uh, when they need to have a break, go to the bathroom. Uh, I see their reaction. Uh, sometimes they, they can hold it, like they have to say something. Uh, they talk to each other, and I feel the vibe of the film. Mm. But I don't need advice. I just need confirmation. So, and, and for me, like when I'm alone, it's per torture to say, I play back the film. It might be like a two hours and 30 minutes long edit and I cannot see through it mm. because I see a thing that I want to fix. I, I want to make a change. And, and then I, f I lost the, um, the chronology. I lost the time. It's time based. So I, I, if I spend 15 minutes to, 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 to make a cut work, then I lost the, the, the timing of the film. So people uh, help me to sit through it and not intervening on, on it while uh, it plays. So that's why I th I'd say it's a bit opportunistic. That, but it's always cool because after I can show them again six months later and then they can see the difference and that's what I want to talk about. It's not their vision of my film, but the change I'm making. So they will always be the same people coming in my studio. And I bet some of them take some credit. Like, oh, he made that change that I suggested, even though it really... <laughs> yeah, I will. Often people are, people are very bad, actually, at watching unfinished work. And I actually also experience that even if I send out a cut to people, um, often the advice they give me is wrong, and I know it's wrong. And I, yeah, it's, <laughs> it sounds arrogant or um, funny, but often... If someone says, like, oh, why don't you do this, or this doesn't really work, like, often it's something else that's not working. Mm -hmm. But I can kind of just really filter and interpret what I'm hearing. I think because I know so much how editing works, sometimes it's, like, not the thing they think that doesn't work, but it's the thing that is before it that's not working, or something about the context or time it takes to get to something. So, yeah, I also take feedback from people with a lot of, like, filtering and interpreting and trying to really understand what yeah, why is it not working? And it's, it's often not the reason they're giving me for why something doesn't work. Yeah, we give that advice to people a lot too. It's like someone at a feedback screening might not have the answer, but the fact that if multiple people are sort of struggling with the same scene, then maybe that scene needs some more attention mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. way, in your way. Mm -hmm. But what I've noticed is that there's a big difference in uh, showing a work in progress or a finished film. Because when you say it's not finished, can you, do you want to look at it? Then it's fragile. It makes everything hyper-fragile, you know, because they question everything. This should be shorter. This should, they don't abandon themselves to your edit. They want to fix it. So it's really... That's why I don't listen to them so much, you know? Because uh, when I say it's finished and then they come, then they just have to, to take it. And they, I, I believe they don't see it the, the same way. They're not in a critical kind of analysis of it, but they just leave it. Mm. And uh, so, yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like we both sound like assholes, but I feel the same way, actually. I've had the experience of showing almost the same film to people as a rough cut and then as a finished film, and I get totally different feedback. But there's something about the social situation of when you're inviting feedback, or it's like you're setting up a kind of expectation of critical conversation, and then, yeah, people will hate everything in that conversation, and then you literally show the same thing, and it's finished, and people respond very, very differently. And yeah, I've had that experience a lot too. Well, I want to get into a little bit of the process. We've sort of leapt ahead to when you already have something, which is, I think, very valuable for our listeners to hear about too. Like, what do you do to shape this thing? But stepping way back, one thing that I thought about when when thinking about this conversation, you know, folks who edit their own films is that so, you know, editing is decision making. That's That's what you're doing all the time, making decisions. And so when you're making decisions, by yourself, it's like a different kind of process. And I wanted to ask you about some of the specific decisions. So you kind of both got to this already, but I'm curious just how you decided, I am going to edit on my own, period. I'm not hiring someone. I'm not having an assistant. I'm um, I used to be an editor, so now I teach full-time now for my day job. <laughs> um, but before that, I was a freelance editor, and I always thought, I think even when I was studying film, editing was the thing that I loved and really responded to and understood that, that that's the place where... And even when I was working as an editor, it felt the same. Like, it really felt like I was making... I was making so many creative and important decisions for the filmmaker that I was working for. And I know for some makers, that's a really generative and wonderful collaboration. Um, but yeah, I definitely... I was making so many decisions on those films that I was editing... Um, so for me, it just came very naturally to edit my own work. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, like it, it I, I totally like when I was at film school and I started editing. Like I, I totally fell in love with it. I had all kinds of classes like uh, cinematography, editing, uh, blah blah blah. But that was the thing uh, I really liked, and it, it it brought me back to my souvenir as a kid. You know, like what I was playing by myself. And it was a lot about collecting stuff. It could be like uh, visit a show and take all the flyers and bring them back home and sort them by color, by texture, by... And that, that was my game. The, my games were made of editing projects somehow. And we would go to camping and then I would start to collect shit and, and, and try to put them in groups and assemble them. And So when I lay my hand on a steam bag, I was just like, wow, this is much better than Lego blocks. <laughs> and, and then uh, it was this. Uh, I still, after 25 years, uh, it's still the thing I like the most. Uh, <clears throat> I've been uh, doing performance art, uh, music, all kinds of things, but when it comes to editing, it's I like to organize things. I like to make sense out of things that make no sense. Mm. I like to measure what is immeasurable. You know, and, and, and editing allows me to do it. Yeah, I had the same. I collect stuff, too. And I had, I don't know, I loved making mixtapes in the tape era. And I had a radio show in high school, like a little cassette recorder. I would just interview people and edit things with my two tape decks. So I think also when I found editing in my first film class in college, it was this experience where I just totally lost time. And I could sit there for like 12 hours or all night and just like I'd... And it's a very different energy. Like I have friends who love shooting and I hate shooting. Shooting is all mm. this incredibly, yeah, immersive, like being out in the world, responding very, very quickly to lots of things happening around you. And I love the kind of slow, immersive, thoughtful rhythm of 
just being alone in the editing room and trying things and thinking and yeah, just the way that it's slow and immersive for me is really pleasurable. So, you know, continuing on this decision thing, then you're you're in there and all you're doing is making decisions all the time. So, how do you sort of gauge your decision making, even with something like selects? Like, how do you decide what material to use? Consider. Um, I mean, if, for me, the big like I watch everything. Um, and I've made both. I've made archival projects, and then this new film is stuff that I've shot and not archival. Um, but I watch absolutely everything. I take notes on everything, and I cut everything. So I'm not really making decisions about what to use and not use until I've made a pass at cutting all the material. And that's really important. Like That for me is really a process of knowing and learning what my footage might be. And I do a lot of writing and take notes and start to get ideas or see connections. Um, but just putting that, it's a lot of time to watch everything and cut everything. But that time feels like really important to me. Can you tell me a little more about like cutting everything in terms of if if you shot like in this project and you have mm-hmm. you know a hundred hours, what does mm-hmm. it mean to cut everything? I mean everything that I log everything and watch it and have a record of everything that there is, um, but everything that could be a scene I cut into a scene with archival stuff. It's different because it's not shooting in the same way. Um, yeah, and with that, I work differently. Like with the previous film I made that was almost all archival, I was just making sketches. Like I was making hundreds of like three to five minute little sketches of trying to play with footage in different ways or put things together in different ways or gather together things that felt like they were in conversation about one idea and I throw a lot of those away. Um, but yeah, for me, it's really this excessive process of like lots more cutting than I could possibly need for the film and lots more watching and lots more logging but really trying to move through the whole ecosystem of whatever my materials are, like before I'm trying to make a structure or imagine like how it starts and how it ends, that before that there's just this big process of taking tons of formless stuff and reducing it into smaller pieces. There, there are many ways of editing, but me, I break it down to two ways. You can go by addition or subtraction. And um, I work by subtraction. I don't like to think that uh, this is my first shot, this is my second shot, and, and add them to a timeline. Uh, if I have 300 hours of footage, it happens sometimes in my production, I have big volume of, of images, then I will have a 300 hours long version of my film to start with. Well, and I will discriminate everything to the bone until I get something that's it's weave, you know, like, it's like weaving. Um, some images like each other, so they end up side by side. And slowly I built up sequences. Those sequences find their place also. When I feel something is more like an ending or beginning of a film, a good intro or something, I will put it all in the beginning of the timeline. I move things around. And I somehow like, like I, I see the film, I see like uh, a sketch of the film. And, uh, I will find my first shot and put it in front. And well, oh, but this one could work too, you know. And I wait until the 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 rest develop, so I can make a better decision on discriminating those two or three potential opening shots. And everything has to be communicating together, like to make it like connected, all to connected together. And that's what I like because I have such like different material. 
and and find uh, solve solving the, the the connecting joint you know like like how can i connect this with this and how you connect like a water slide uh, video and that will lead you to the space station international space station you know and it's it can be a matter of movement line color mm. it can be anything it can be the sound element words um so all things connect together and to try to make sense out of this mess i'm working with because uh, if you think of it like i work with a ratio of infinite to one dealing with the internet so it's almost a nightmare for most editor how do you deal with that so I organize my time like there's a time of capture, capturing, and then after I disconnect myself completely from the internet. And the solution yeah. needs to come from the, the, the volume of images I have. I don't go back on the internet online to find a solution for my edit. It needs to be solved inside, mm -hmm. in my intranet, you know? And for that, because it's really difficult to like pull off the plug, so I have a small cabin in the wood. There's no phone, ah, no internet, no nothing. Don't give yourself a choice. And this is where I, you know, find my solution. Mm -hmm. It has to come from the material. So it sounds like, in a way, you both use a like a reductive rather than an additive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, process. I do too. Definitely. But, but like, I'm curious just to follow up with Dominic. So, so. When Irene has material, if it's not an archival project, she shot it, and that's it. She has that's the material she has to work with. In your case, as you say, the internet is infinite, and if you're pulling material from the internet, like you're deciding what it is you're starting with. So, in a way, you're making selects before you've ever made selects in mm -hmm. the the editing process. So, how do you make those? Well, I would use like keywords, for example, like when I look for videos uh, online. For example, now I, I, I want to try to make a film about China. Hmm. You know, and there's this great firewall, and, and it, it's really difficult to have uh, non-viral amateur videos that make sense. So um, it, it's like I will use certain keywords, you know, in search engine, and this is already editing. You know, it's already selecting. It's already discriminating stuff. So now I go by everything China, you know, boat China, mm. uh, tennis China, <laughs> and, and then and then I go through all the words of the dictionary, you know, uh, plus China. And then I see like I'm, I'm trying to see if I can do a portrait of China by um, exposing the filters the censorship that, that if I see only nice things, you know, <laughs> there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with it, you know? Mm -hmm. So trying to make like a portrait by the negative from, from what I can reach, what I cannot get, what is hidden. So mm -hmm. it, it might do a really different film and I'm completely embracing this idea of censorship and filters and, and firewalls and, and encryption and blockchain. And I'll see what it's going to completely influence the aesthetic of the film and the content and, and everything. But it's a matter of abandoning myself to super simple rules, you know. Use this keyword and that's it. Mm. So it becomes almost like a scientific, you know, like a searcher. Or I don't want to be so much involved like emotionally or aesthetically in it. I just grab everything. And when I'm offline, then I, I will... Try to find the subject, try to find the rhythm, try to find um, 
a climax to the film, even suspense. I, I like to, to play with gender, genre cinema, you know, like uh, in documentary. So I, I like to create like really horrific uh, situation <laughs> by by splicing certain visual with certain sound and like in go, going south. There's a scene where you see kids. Uh, dancing in the discotheque and, and, and then I've used like firework sound over it. So all the laser, like it's like killing robot, like want to kill all those kids in, 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 uh, in the discotheque. And, and, and to me, like it says so much about like the, this, I don't know, like latent violence there is in all those acts of like raves and, and mm. all those kids like getting naked on drugs and, and <laughs> alienating themselves with lasers and uh, it just jumping everywhere and, and with those fireworks it, it, it just hijacking a situation and make it something else you know mm-hmm. hijacking some visual some popular culture um, chunk of popular culture and, and just transform it into something else so one of the critiques of people uh, of films that are edited by their maker it can be, you know, it was too hard for them to kill their darlings. They, they left too much in because they didn't have an objective, you know, somebody else to say, you got to get rid of that thing as much as you love it. And you don't have those people. So um, how Did do you, you make, that? yeah, that you don't have, you know, someone standing over your shoulder by design saying, you must get rid of this or this just is too much or I know you love it, but... It's not going to work. So how do you sort of um, police yourself in the edit room? I'm so hard on my footage. Yeah, I don't think I need a police. Although I read, I did read a review that said yours in sisterhood is much too long. Um, but I think people are uh, not used to listening for, to women for 100 minutes. So I think that it feels long to people for that reason, <laughs> honestly. Um, I mean, really, when I read it, I was like, yeah, it's a long time for women to speak on screen. Wow. So. Um, but yeah, I'm very hard on myself. I, I don't, and I, um, I really feel like I know when a film is done, and by the time I know it's done, I've watched it so many times and spent years usually just with the material, looking at the material. Um, so yeah, it's never a question. And I cut a lot of stuff that I love, and that's not hard to do once you watch it enough times. Enough times, you just know when it's not working. Mm. Um, so that hasn't been a struggle. I don't know. Maybe my work would be better if it were shorter I don't know yeah um, it, it used to be problematic I think in my first film because I was shooting myself so I would remember how hard it was to get some certain right. shots and, and but now since I work with others people visuals like I'm super hard on everything uh, no strings attached you know like it's just it, it's, it's what I see you know and uh, I don't know the context of filming the the value of it or I don't know the people I don't it's not like making a film about my family or it's other people's family right so uh, I feel I'm quite okay you know to and I, I really take it like I, I always want to make things up to like next level you know like so it's all about concentration. So sometimes it's just like I would spend two, three days just to remove a few frame out mm. <laughs> of the film. Because <laughs> it the shorter, the better. Because mm-hmm. it would be more concentrated. But like the last one I did, it's 104 minutes. 
but I started with 500 hours of footage. Ooh. So it, in the end, like you end up like trying to take out like one word, the end of a sentence, just for fluidity. Right. But uh, so to me, like the 80%. shorter is the better all the time. I don't yeah. try to make long film, but now it just happened because I, I work with big volume. But uh, yeah, some friends sometimes say, oh, you're obsessed with this and that. And it always come back and th th those things. And, and to me, it's totally fine. I'm an auteur, you know. I mean, so I have my own obsession, my, my own uh, thing, you know. Yeah, what filmmaker isn't obsessed with something? I mean, you know, Irene, you're spending five, six years on a film. That's some level of obsession. <laughs> yeah, and I had a, yours and Sisterhood was 300 people that I filmed with. And, and the film itself has 27 people in it. Um, and it's very different from a lot of my last film was archival and much more essayistic and much more complicated in its structure. And this film, I think, looks very simple in the way that it's edited. Like, it's quite kind of formal and almost a structural film, and it's kind of durational and slow and long, but so, like, every second of, like, how long is the right amount of time for this long thing to stay on screen, and when does it cut, and how does it cut? Like, yeah, all of that stuff is, like, so precisely worked out for that film, even though it feels simple and airy and durational. It's, yeah, equally precise, I think. Nothing happened by accident. Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> Not a frame, no. Actually, to your point, though, it's, it is a non-traditional structure. Both of your films, in the, the films we're talking about today, are non-traditional structures. And, and that was a decision you had to come to as well. So I'm curious sort of when in the process you had a sense of the structure you were going for, if that played out as you worked with material, and how did you kind of know that you could could keep an audience with you on a journey that's not a traditional uh, beginning, middle, end journey. I mean, I never make beginning, middle, end journey. It's like not a form that, yeah, I don't know, it's kind of played out. <laughs> that beginning, middle, end journey. Um, this film is easier, actually, than a lot of my other work. So it is an unconventional form, but actually a lot of the form comes out of the way it's shot, um, where it has this kind of, it's a kind of a series of performances and then, uh, documentary conversations that are mixed together um, but it was you know all shot with just two lenses and one camera and everyone was shot the same way so it already coming into the edit had like a lot of the form was kind of worked through um, and a lot of those decisions were very early like I knew I didn't want to cut people up or cut them together in this film it felt very important to make a lot of time and space around each interaction with each person and kind of really give people a generous screen time um, like that film is really about listening in some ways. So a lot of the form came out of things I knew before I even started editing. So yeah, for this film, a lot of the decisions were like, how long is the right amount of long? And mm -hmm. then which people in what order? And how does it produce different meanings with different choices around that? Um, but also there was a moment where a lot of people were telling me to put archival footage or images into that film because it is also about the 70s and people know that I've made a lot of work with and this film comes out of archival research. It's based on letters written in the 70s. Um, but I felt pretty strongly with this film not to do that and to really withhold images from the past because I think it's very easy to make a nostalgic space when mm. people are thinking about, I don't know, the 70s. There's a lot of work about the 70s that's kind of nostalgic that's come out recently. And it felt important to me to kind of make a claim with this film that it's really about this unfinished business that's really being actively negotiated in the present, and I wanted to keep the film in the present, and 
that's what worked for this film. Um, even though I love archival material and have made a lot of other work that's only archival. So those were some of the decisions that I made. Uh, me, I, I like uh, really young, like as a student, there were a few filmmakers that um, uh, said that uh, cinema is dead. Uh, in the 90s, like, it was really like a big thing. And and uh, I said, okay, I'll t take their word, you know, as a student, <laughs> I said, I, I will find a corpse, you know, where, should, where, is, where is it? <laughs> and then I couldn't really find it because you still see people make films, there are festivals, so... So I say, okay, so then it's because if I don't find the corpse is being dismantled, you know? And, and then that was the right thinking because everything has become cinematographic. Video clips, publicity, even the way we, we uh, share content uh, in, on Instagram, or how people like dress, and it's really cinematographic. So my work now is to find those bits, you know, like uh, I find a hand there, I find a foot, I find a, an ear, and, and then stitch them back all together. Those elements of popular culture that are cinematographic, mm. as cinema has been dissolved in popular culture, everybody makes his own cinema now, mm -hmm. you know, YouTubers, uh, blah, blah, blah. Even cops with body cam. You know, right. like, so there's cinema everywhere now, you know, tragedy, drama, comedy. <clears throat> so to me, it's find those little bits, you know, of cinema and stitch them together to have like this kind of Frankenstein cinema, you know. So my guideline to answer your question is what makes it cinematographic? What makes it cinema again? Mm. You know, to stitch YouTubers, clips, video together and get something that is more like narrative, you know, having character development over times in the film, having suspense, not saying everything, which is really traditional for cinema. Mm -hmm. So I feel I'm using extremely traditional technique of telling a story or convince a point or whatever, but I use different material as a starting point. So this is the only thing that makes my film weird because I feel <laughs> I'm really classic. You know, the going south is really classic. You mm. have eight central characters and you follow them in their journey and there are pause, interlude, some, you know, like drama tricks and, and, and it makes it like a watchable film, you know. But you don't know the subject. <laughs> you don't know where <laughs> it's going. You, it's not like you're not being taken by the hand and walked through the film. It, it's disturbing because you don't know what's going on. You don't know what to expect next. But after 30 minutes of almost like chaos, then you start to feel a structure. And you see a character is coming back. Mm -hmm. And you feel that you're going to see it again and again and again. And then it becomes really classical form of storytelling. Yeah, I can say another thing about story, uh, which I've thought a lot about, because again, in the funding world, I think there's so much uh, interest in kind of emphasis, traditional story yeah. and emphasis on character and character arc. And uh, for me, there's a lot of like politics around that question, especially in documentary. Like, what does it mean to seek out or cast like some one person who's holding in their body and life a social issue or a larger political situation like I think it's very ethically problematic actually to make films that way um so yeah in this film in particular I wanted it was very important to me to make a collective film that's not not about a character and not inviting one person to represent feminism or feminist conversation and yeah not find like some uplifting woman who's doing a great thing to tell a story about but to really make a different kind of claim and different politics, like actually in the structure and form of, of how the film is 
about many people who don't agree with each other who are, you know, um, speaking, creating a space of speaking and listening across a lot of difference. Um, so yeah, I think there's also kind of a, yeah, politics around story form and what, what are the limitations of that ethically and politically. I also think it's an exciting moment even to have the two of you here, you know, it, the, the boundaries of storytelling within doc and what that means and what you quote unquote have to do or don't have to do is really exploding in a nice way, I think, in a positive way. I mean, it's nice that the work is getting shown. I, th I mean, I think a lot, I mean, there's always been a huge experimental film community and all kinds of really interesting and formally innovative work, but I think it's just about what kind of profile that work gets and where it gets shown and who's paying attention. Right. Um, but yeah, it's been amazing that this film has been showing a lot. I've made other work that doesn't show at this level. So it's not that the work hasn't always been there, but it's about what people are paying attention to and how the kind of big kind of uber conversation starts to shift in the documentary world. And I've seen a little bit of that in the past few years. And that is nice. Mm. But the work has been there all along. People right. have always been experimenting. Well, back to the topic at hand. So now I just want a devil's advocate moment. Why, why shouldn't someone edit their own work? Like, what would you, what's bad about it? <laughs> I don't know, but I can only uh, think of my friends, filmmakers' friends, like um, those who use others to edit. Um, most of the time they'll do it because they know the person. They know the editor. Sometimes it's long time uh, relationship you know you have your editor because it's your good friend you can debrief you can talk it's almost like a psychologist mm -hmm. <laughs> I can, I'm talking mm -hmm. about my friends you know but uh, I think that doing it by themselves would be way too uh, difficult in terms of anxiety they, they, they couldn't like carry it and uh, they totally need their, their pal their, 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 their friend to to take care of it, have some distance, you know, and uh, some people are, are just really, really, really good at editing. They have this sense of right. cutting and timing, and and you, I think you 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 you're born with that. It's not something you really learn. You can learn to do commercial or really tr like normal commercial. It's it's easy. You, know, you just have to copy, but. To invent things on the editing table to make sense out of of garbage sometimes you know like or bad really bad shoots you know like you have to have a creative mind you know and mm -hmm. uh, being good at designing solutions for films and and this you cannot really learn so some people just don't have it they have good skills on the ground like meeting people filming everything financing right. <laughs> pitching <laughs> but. They, they, they need it because it can really make the difference like a badly edited film is the saddest thing in the world mm. when you watch a film and you feel like you would re-edit it yourself to make it super powerful it's, it's really sad <laughs> yeah and I think to pick up on that it's very it is actually psychologically it's hard to work alone and even yeah, you have to be very strong to, I think, wake up every morning and just the act of imagination to tell yourself that you, you know, that you're a filmmaker, that your project is real, that this thing that you're doing is important or matters or is meaningful. Yeah, that's not for everyone, I think, to just invent that psychological universe for themselves day after day. Um, <laughs> and it's not always easy for me. It's gotten easier the more 
the world also believes that I'm a filmmaker and making real things, it, it makes it easier. Um, certainly when I was young, like in my 20s, that was like just exhausting to every day be like, I'm making this like feature film alone. Um, but yeah, I think it, for a lot of people, just having being in a collaborative community just helps them, just helps them work feel real even before it's out in the world and, and is real. Well, then, then a final question is, um, if, if folks have heard this conversation and they say, you know what, I'm going to embark on my next one on my own. I think these, these folks are on to something. What, how would you advise them? Would you have any advice about process or getting psychologically ready or, um, or why, you know, how to approach their, their project? I think just watch everything a lot. I think because people want to skip to like knowing what the film will be before they know the material, but really just learning what you have for as long as it takes to learn that before you try to make a structure. And I love index cards. That's very specific advice. But actually, the like the cabin without internet, like for me, it's really important in a certain moment to just get out of the computer because mm-hmm. there's this, that space of nonlinear editors. You can just infinitely move stuff around and tweak and... and like you can kind of never see your whole film because eventually it's all these tiny little like slivers of, of shots on a timeline. Um, but just to have ways of um, just even more analog, very low tech ways of getting outside of that nonlinear editing world to just think about what the pieces of your film are and how they might form a structure. Um, yeah, I just use colored index cards, but that's that's my advice. Um, my first advice would be to buy a really good chair. Because you're going to spend a lot of time sitting and watching and editing. So honestly, like it makes the difference. (laughs) I mean, sitting on shitty chair all my life and now I want a good one. (laughs) I own it. But uh, the second thing would be to insist with everybody. Like, uh, I mean, post-production facilities, everything. Insist on having the freedom to work sound and visual at the same time. You don't edit visual and after you do the sound mm. editing or the sound design, it's, that is not an option anymore. This is working method that belongs to film, where it was really complicated to handle the two medium at the same time because you had magnetic sound and celluloid visuals. It couldn't be mixed together easily. So most post-production center now still work this way you know you do your offline you do your online you do your sound design and after if you want to fix something with the visual with the sound you cannot if you want to fix something with the sound with the visual you cannot and i think this is our opportunity now with computers to have everything digital sound and images for me is the same it's 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 digital and and it can be tweaked all together so insist and make pressure on, on every center, production center, to allow you to work the both together. You never lock your picture before uh, starting to do sound or anything. You keep it open. That would be my advice. Yeah, I would just add to that. My last film, I worked for two and a half years with my sound designer, and she gave me her whole sound library very early in the process, and the difference it made to be editing with sound design all along because it totally changes the tone of the film and the way that meaning is produced. And I, yeah, I think that's really good advice is to work with sound as early as possible. What a luxury. Well, uh, 
I'm so excited to hear, you know, what's going to happen, who listens to this podcast and makes the decision. You, you have definitely influenced some folks today, I think. Um, so thank you so much for your time and all your insights and wisdom. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Dominic and Irene, and thank you for listening. Both of their current films are still on the festival circuit, so look out for their releases in the coming year. If you liked this conversation, come back for a new interview or roundtable every Monday. And on Thursdays, don't miss our Indie Film Weekly news show that fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. You can get any of these by searching for the No Film School podcast in iTunes or your favorite app. Also, be sure to visit nofilmschool.com for useful new filmmaking articles every single day. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at No Film School. See you on Thursday.